You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. It is our hope that this teaching helps you on your mission to make the gospel unignorable in your city. For more information, visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. We want to welcome you here today. My name is Mike Murdoch. I'm one of the covenant members here at the church. And here at Providence, we are a people committed to a single and compelling mission. And that's to make the gospel unignorable in our city by making, maturing, and motivating disciples. To that end, we teach the Bible each and every week so we can run to the words of truth and trust in Christ. This week, we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians entitled Dear Church. In this series, we hope to consider the call to submit to the Lordship of Christ in all spheres of our life and what that means for us. So to kick off the series, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there with us. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to find one under the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, please consider that a gift from us. Again, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Just want to thank Mike for having such a wonderful voice. I asked him in between gatherings if he would read books to me to sleep. And I haven't gotten an answer yet, so I'll have a report back next week. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if it's your first time, I just want to say thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here, and we really hope you enjoy yourself with us. Uh, Like Mike said, we're kicking off a sermon series for the rest of the year, walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, And the sermon series is entitled Dear Church, as this obviously is a letter to a specific church at a specific time. But we're going to be taking the tack of uh, learning and, and growing by trying to understand what does it mean for us as the church in this time. And so... What I want to do this morning is kind of lay some context work, a little bit of background of the book of 1 Corinthians for maybe the first half of the sermon, and then we're going to focus on these first nine verses. It's an ambitious task, but I think I'm going to be able to do it. Um, I did pretty decently in the first gathering. That almost ensures I'm not going to do a great job now that I mentioned it to you, but what I want to do first is pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us, and then we'll kind of dive in. Father, thank you for the great privilege that we have to come freely and gather together to worship you, to come before your throne of grace and to do so boldly because of the blood of Jesus. We thank you that your word has stood the test of time. We thank you for preserving it. And these words that we will read now from your servant, Paul, 
that they were not just for Corinth, but they are for us. And we thank you, my God, that they have been used to shape and mold and conform your church to your image for a couple of thousands of years. We ask now, would you open our ears, open our hearts to hear from you through these words? We do not look to Paul as the one to give the increase, but as your word tells us that your servants plant seeds and water. And so we ask, would you plant seeds and water by the power of your word, but through the mediation of your spirit? And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us as each of us has need to hear Speak to us collectively as a congregation, but individually and as families. Minister to us now, we ask, my God, that we might be obedient to your call, to your word, but also take joy and worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. Unify us and meet those needs as you see fit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so before we jump into the passage, I want to answer a few questions. You know, what is the letter to... Uh, the Corinthian church here. You know, who wrote it? We already mentioned Paul, but what's the occasion of its writing? You know, what's the background behind it? Why was the letter written? Who are the Corinthians? What exactly is going on? The, The reason that this is all important, of course, is because as you read through the letter, knowing a little bit about the city and the people and why Paul wrote it in the first place starts to give some context to things like its tone. Um, how Paul speaks to the Corinthians or the topics that he covers, you know, knowing some of this background really helps uh, so that you don't make some assumptions about Paul or about what he's saying that are, that are untrue. But 1 Corinthians, a book that is written by Paul the, Apostle, Paul the Apostle to a church that he was responsible for planting. That's really key. The origin of Corinth or the church at Corinth was Paul. And we're going to read that story together in a moment. But Corinth is this trade city. It's located, it's a very small strip of land. It's called, very difficult to pronounce. You guys will know it from geography, but you know, an isthmus, you know what I'm talking about? Liddy, yeah. Didn't want to even throw that one out there. You guys got that for free. I didn't say that to nine, but that's what it is. It's a tiny little strip of land. That it's a seaport on both sides. So you get the Eastern trade and the Western trade through Corinth. Um, and it's a very wealthy city for that reason. Pretty extravagant, pretty decadent. And because of all those things, pretty immoral, Okay, the city was known for its immorality. Um, for example, they had dozens of pagan worship sites. They had temples for the goddess Aphrodite. This gave rise to, you know, she was the goddess of love. So this gives rise to a high number of prostitutes in the city. Um, so much so that the Greek word Corinthiazo uh, actually means uh, to commit immorality. It's what the word means. And they used the town uh, as as kind of the, the, for the phonetics of the etymology of the word. Uh, Plato even uses the phrase, you guys know the, the philosopher Plato, he uses the phrase Corinthian girl as a colloquial term for prostitute. Okay, so that's the idea that they had of when you go to Corinth, what you're going there to expect. Paul shows up and says, this is the place I'm going to plant a church. You know, this is the place that I'm going to see the gospel advance. He first visited Corinth on a missionary journey and just after preaching his famous sermon uh, that you're probably familiar with in Athens on Mars Hill. This is where he says, men of Athens, I have found that you're a very religious people for I've found amongst your people all these different uh, tombs to the gods or these monuments to the gods. I even found this one that says to the unknown God and that God that is unknown to you, I proclaim to you now. And he, pre- he preaches the gospel. This is the, Paul's famous sermon to the kind of the sophists or the, the, the knowledgeable ones in Athens. 
Corinth is only 50 miles uh, due west of this. It's very close. So he goes directly from Athens to Corinth, and that's where he has his first engagement with the people there. I'm going to read this account. We're not going to spend much time on it because my guess is that we'll come back to it. It's a great um, context here for some of the things that we will see later on in the letter, but we are going to read it together at the very outset this morning. Uh, but before we do, I just want to make mention of one thing that I think is maybe going to seem scholarly. It's not really all that scholarly and it's important. And that is when we read first Corinthians, um, we have to understand we are not reading the first letter Paul ever wrote to the church at Corinth. This is our first Corinthians. It would have been Corinth's second Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells the church at Corinth, I wrote to you a letter before discussing these things, meaning that Paul had written a letter before he ever wrote 1 Corinthians, and this is a letter that is a response to a report from his first letter. A woman named Chloe writes Paul and says, hey, you sent your first letter, things aren't going well. And then he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is actually 2 Corinthians in its chronology, if that makes sense. After that, we see that Paul will then move on. Um, I think that he sends, or I believe that he sends uh, Silas and Timothy together, and um, they go to get a report. He writes a third letter uh, to the Corinthians to check on them later. And then our second Corinthians is actually the fourth in the chronology. That's fourth Corinthians, really. It's his most severe letter that he writes. And if you've ever read second Corinthians, you know, his tone can get pretty intense in the book. But I say all that why, you know, why it seems like an unnecessary detail. But the reason I say this is uh, the tone of 1 Corinthians, if you understand that this is four letters that Paul wrote, he writes in a fatherly tone. He planted this church, he cares about these people, and he's been regularly involved in their life. We're going to read in Acts 18, the Bible tells us he spent 18 months there. That's way longer than Paul spent anywhere except Ephesus. He spent the majority of his time in Ephesus and Corinth, as far as cities are concerned. Paul's method was to stay places short. He preached the gospel and evangelized. He set the church up with elders, and then he would send messengers back. But Paul was a man on a mission. He wanted to get to Rome, and ultimately he wanted to get to Spain. He wanted to preach the gospel where Christ had not yet been named. So the fact that he stayed here for 18 months, wrote them four letters across that time while he was visiting elsewhere, he cares about this group of people deeply. And that's why you see such a fatherly tone. And that's why it matters to know that these letters are not the only letters that Paul wrote. Now, having said that, let's read the origin story of the church at Corinth, Acts chapter 18, uh, verses 1 through 17. It's going to be behind me, or you can turn there either way. <clears throat> so the Bible says, after this, Paul left Athens after the sermon on Mars Hill. And he went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila. I want you guys to listen for names that you're familiar with, by the way. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Now listen, as a pause, Claudius was the emperor of Rome at the time, and he had kicked all of the Jews out of Rome because the Jews and the Gentiles had been getting into multiple squabbles and skirmishes in the city of Rome. If you ever see in your New Testament uh, the term that during the dispersion, okay, this is what they're talking about, when Claudius kicked all the Jews out of the city, all right? That's what's happening here. So, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them. Paul is of the same trade as Priscilla and Aquila. 
and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. If you ever wondered where we get the idea that Paul's a tent maker, here you go. Priscilla and Aquila were his first co-laborers in tent making, and then he preaches the gospel to them. They become his co-laborers in the gospel, and you get their names kind of popping up through the New Testament. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That's unfamiliar language for you and I because we are Greeks and Gentiles. Okay, this is simple, that the Messiah was Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what he's trying to convince the Jews of. Hey, Old Testament Messiah, that's Jesus. Okay, now watch what happens. Verse six, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. This is pretty regular with Paul. He gets fed up with his own brothers, with his own friends. I just want you to know, uh, he actually doesn't only do that though. You know, he, uh, he, keeps, he continues on trying to reason with the Jews in the synagogues in his own house. The book of Acts ends with him on house arrest, but he keeps bringing the people in to reason with him in his own house. And he probably, I just picture Paul trying to reason with the Jewish people in Rome you know, that, that were still kind of there hiding away and then he would just get mad and all right fine get out of my house I'm gonna go to the Gentiles and then like the next day he'd be like all right come back over let's re-talk about this he was he loved his fellow brothers the Jews but he knew that God had sent him to the Gentiles so he had some difficulty um, when they wouldn't accept the Messiah now he left there and he went to, to the house of a man uh, Titus or Titius Justice a worshiper of God his house was next door to the synagogue Crispus, there's another name, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Ah, so now there's this influx of people that are starting to be baptized in this very uh, interestingly decadent, luxurious, and moral town. And the Lord said to Paul one night, I want you guys to listen to this, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So many things in there. Hopefully we'll get over them over the course of the year, but I want you to think there are a few things. Number one, God says, uh, don't be afraid. No one's going to attack you to harm you. He doesn't say he's not going to get attacked. In a minute, we're going to see he absolutely will. But God says, not gonna, don't worry, I'm not going to let anyone harm you. And then he says, I've got a ton of people here that are mine. <laughs> what an encouraging word. Uh, if for you, if you're an evangelist or you show up to a city and you want to plant this church and it's just a really decadent city and you know, you go to your own brothers that you think will hear you because they actually do believe the scriptures and they just reject you altogether. And then you're trying to go where to like the temple of Aphrodite and convince them, you know, and, and you're just like, oh, how's this going to work? And God says, hey, don't worry. I'm going to protect you. I got tons of people here that are mine. You're going to be successful. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Okay, verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So remember, Jesus said, I'm not gonna let them attack to harm you. He didn't say he wasn't gonna permit an attack and here comes the attack. They brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, so Paul's about to defend himself, but watch how the Lord saves him from himself. Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge over you in these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. Now, verse 17 is kind of difficult to understand, but most of the commentators agree that what happens here is the Jews are so angry that they didn't win in court that they take the ruler of their synagogue, who was either 
in opposition, this is not Christmas, by the way, this is Sosthenes, either he was in opposition to Jesus or he was at least ambivalent and they punish him before the tribunal by beating him mercilessly. That's verse 17. They seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal and Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So, a few things that I want to point out right off the bat. Number one, we're introduced to characters here that are represented not only in Paul's first letter of a uh, first letter for us and first chapter of that letter to Corinth, but also in other parts of the Bible. Corinth was founded on the heels of a providential meeting between Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, this tent-making couple where they come to know Jesus and they become his co-laborers in the gospel. Also, we're introduced to characters that are in the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Sosthenes, who's in the introduction that we're reading this morning. Later, in chapter number one, Paul will say, I'm glad that I didn't baptize either, any of you except for who? Crispus and Gaius. Crispus was one of the men baptized by Paul, one of only two. And we're introduced to him in Acts 18. Secondarily, I want you to take note right off the bat of the spiritual opposition to Paul's work in Corinth when he first began in the city. The enemy had no interest in allowing Paul to be successful in planting a church in a city like this did not want a gospel witness in Corinth. And so he was after him from the jump. And then, of course, we need to take note of God's encouraging word to Paul. Stick around. Don't be afraid. I'll protect you. It may look like there's no one here that would ever accept or receive the gospel. I have so many in this city that you don't know of. Just keep plugging away. And then lastly, or finally, but definitely not least, I want you to notice that Paul stays here for 18 months. He wants to establish this congregation. It, it, it indicates that he's adamant about continuing this communication with this people, and he cares deeply for them, not just in a um, business-like way. He doesn't care for them only as far as this uh, city in Corinth, you'll hear people say this, was strategically located. You'll hear, and it's true, it is strategically located. You know, Paul may have been thinking, if we plant a church here, you're gonna get a lot of different people that are coming through trade routes and the gospel's gonna go everywhere. But when you read through First and Second Corinthians, I want you to also catch that even if that's true, Paul's primary reason for writing these letters is because he loves these people like a dad. He has care for them like a father, and it makes sense of his tone. I want you to think, this is like, you know, Chloe writes to Paul and says things aren't going well. This would be like a, a military mom writing to dad while dad's deployed and saying it's not going well with the kids and the kids get a letter from dad, okay? And you may see things in that letter and be like, man, it's kind of intense. It's like, well, it is their dad and dad's not there and he wants them to know these are things that you need to hear from me and I am coming back. This is why Paul will say things like, you know, when I show up, do I need to show up with a, you know, with a, with a whip? It's like, what in the world? That seems like a really intense thing to say, but it's a fatherly care that he has. Now, finally, before we jump into the, ver uh, the actual verses, why is, it, why is it good for us to walk through 1 Corinthians together? And I want to make this case quickly um, because I want to make sure we have enough time for the actual text, but I'm convinced that just as Corinth was a wealthy, decadent, syncretistic congregation. And by syncretistic, I simply mean they struggled with keeping Christ at the center and the gospel at the center. And they adopted various different cultural practices into their life in the church because they just were unfamiliar with anything else or they'd gotten so used to it. You know, you, you're used to seeing the temple prostitutes so much, your own sexual immorality seems tame in comparison. Does this sound familiar? And so when I look at whether you call it the American church or maybe it's just Western evangelicalism, I think we can agree at some level that we are wealthy, 
and have become decadent and there's a syncretism that we struggle with. Like a fish doesn't understand what the term wet means because they've always lived in water. Some of us have grown up in an ecosystem that we, we, we don't quite understand what Paul's saying when he calls people to holiness because it's just so outside of the realm of what you and I are familiar with. Things are just normal to us that we're not normal to God and his church and the kingdom. And then lastly, what did Corinth need that we need? Very simply, fathers, spiritual fathers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, you have many teachers, my, my friends, but you have not many fathers, but I've become your father in Christ Jesus. You know, this is God's way of fathering us through the words of Paul, through the pages of history. That if we will receive Paul's words, or ultimately what we're receiving is the father's words to us. We need fatherly direction and correction coming on the back end of our series on Reformation and Revival, if we're going to build a gospel community that's aimed at revival and reformation, we are in desperate need of fatherly guidance and correction that God offers us here through the words of Paul. Last thing I'll say, and then we'll jump into the passages, you know, part of a revival and reformation or that vision is that there's a beautiful and good and true and lovely community that Christ desires to build to draw people into. We must remember it's only built through heeding the wisdom and truth of God, which is mediated by the word of God and illuminated by the spirit of God. So I say all that to say in a very simple way, when we read 1 Corinthians, don't immediately toss aside Paul's words as, oh, he's kind of stodgy and old fashioned and those are just traditional values. Like, no, that's the worst thing to do. Because just like the Corinthians probably thought that of Paul, it's like, oh, this Jewish guy shows up and he just got weird values. And what does Paul say? He doesn't allow that whatsoever. He starts off by saying, I am an apostle of the will of God. Takes a different posture. So we must receive him as something different. We're in need of the spiritual father that Paul offers because ultimately we're in need of our heavenly father to lead us. So let's start. I want to read verses one through three and we'll continue in the passage. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins his letter with two main objectives. He wants to establish identity, both his own and, and Corinth's, and instill gratitude in them. You're gonna get that in verses four through nine. He wants them to know who he is, why they should listen to him, because you got to remember, there's been some time between Paul sitting with them for 18 months, and now he's a, a far away. And you know, absence may make the heart grow fonder, but it also, uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play, right? And so he's saying, hey, you should listen to me, because why? Well, how does Paul begin? He addresses the elephant in the room. He says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he, you know, like Robert Duvall in the apostle, where you just baptize yourself. No, he says, by the will of God. So Paul wants them to know he's not coming on his own authority. God's the one who made me an apostle. God is the one who sent me. And this is kind of a leadership 101 for us and for every Christian. Godly leaders do not and cannot lead from their own ideas or authority, but only from the word of God on borrowed authority. It's the only way. I'm going to say that again. Godly leaders do not lead from their own ideas or on their own authority or on their own record, but godly leaders lead from the word of God on borrowed authority from God himself. Number two, we can take from this that 
although there is such a thing as bad leadership, nonetheless, Christians need leaders. And the reason we can be so sure of this is because God keeps sending them to us. Read the Bible. It's like God keeps sending leaders even whenever they end up inevitably being squirrely leaders. You notice this? Like all of the heroes of the Old Testament, you read through there and you get all these great stories of the heroes, but you also get portions where they just do things that are inexplicable. You know, like Abraham's a wonderful guy in, in many respects, but he, he gets a little squirrely with Sarah whenever he tells the Egyptian Pharaoh that this is my sister in the hopes that he doesn't get killed. That's a weird lie, okay? David is a great man, but we also have the stories of David and Bathsheba. We can, we can continue on. Jacob, he's one of the heroes, but also, you know, he has some weird, squirrely stuff he does with his brother and cheats him and, you know, does some supplanting himself. He's got weird trickster stuff with Laban. So what do we see? That even through all of those things, God doesn't say, you know what, I'm done with these people. I'm done with all these leaders. No, he just keeps sending leaders. He keeps sending leaders to us. Why? Because Christians need leaders. The people of God need someone to lead. And how do they lead when they lead well? They lead with God as the head, as God as the ultimate North Star. We're going to have leaders in our lives. I want you to hear me on this. It's not a question of whether you'll have a leader. It's which kind of leader will you have. And this is because leadership is ultimately only influence. And you will have influences in your lives. What kind of influences will you have? God sends us leaders that they might influence us like Paul to say, follow me as I follow Christ. There are other leaders who will influence you and they might say, just follow me. And the question you must ask is to where? Where might you be leading me? And if we don't ask those questions, then ultimately we can convince ourselves all day long that we're mavericks and we don't have anybody that leads us. I promise you, because leadership is influence, we all have them. It's just a matter of what kind we'll have. Paul's clear about his intentions here, which I love. As a good father would be, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Paul's fatherly leadership comes from one motivation and one motivation alone. He wants good for these people. He wants grace and he wants peace for their lives. The ultimate end that we're after as, as fathers, as mothers, as leaders, as pastors is essential. And that essential means must be for the glory of God and the good of others. That's what Paul shows here. He wants them to experience grace and peace, even though they are a dysfunctional church. But in verse two, Paul lays out a reminder to the Corinthians about who they are as well. He wants to tell them about their identity as well. And so what does he tell them? What kind of people are they? What kind of people are the Corinthian church? Well, he gives them this line. They are a sanctified people who are saints called together in the Lord Jesus Christ along with the saints all over the world. I'll say that again. So Paul tells you, I'm an apostle, but who are you? You're sanctified saints called together and unified in Christ Jesus along with saints all over the world. Now, why is identity a big question mark? Why is it important for Paul to address this? Then, now, and always, identity is the human struggle. It's this, you know, moment that we have, whether it's at 10 years old or 17 years old, or maybe you're just a, a real, like, romantic kid, and so it's like four years old. You look at the sky, and you're like, who am I, you know? Where am I? That kind of idea, you know? Or you're like Andy Bernard on The Office. You're like, I watched Life of Pi, got really reflective, you know, <laughs> got on a sailboat and spent six months out there. You know, that, that idea of who am I and where do I find place? And Paul wants us to understand that that, that longing, that desire to know who you are is, is really important. It's really important for you to understand it, but how you go about finding it and how you go about securing that identity is 
equally as important as knowing that you ought to find it in the first place. Our culture finds identity in an existential way. You see this in our Disney movies, right? So Disney movies always have pretty much a similar plot. You know, you always got like a, a Moana who finds herself by like getting on a boat and rebelling against dad, right? Or like Elsa, you know, my, my, my daughter loves that song. She always wants to hear the Let It Go song. But there's a line in there. It's like Elsa's struggling with, she has these powers that she's been holding down. And she's like, there's this line where she, she doesn't want to be the good girl that everybody wants her to be. So she rebels and she's like an ice queen in a kingdom, you know. And then they have kind of a redemptive arc. It comes back and they find themselves. That They had to go out and then find themselves to come back. I'm, if you're a Disney lover, I'm not trying to hate on you, by the way. Okay, I'm just trying to give you a picture of how our culture sees identity uh, as something that you go out and find like an explorer would. And the Bible has a different view of this. The Bible has a version of identity that comes to us through blessing. And that blessing is usually mediated through fathers or covenant. So you see this in the Old Testament, uh, predominantly with the patriarchs, in moments where Isaac blesses Jacob and Esau. And there's this, and I don't know about you, but when you read it, do you ever think like, why didn't Isaac just say like, oh, okay, somebody cheated me, so actually I meant Esau. Let's redo this. You ever thought about that? Like whenever he finds out that Jacob had lied to him, he doesn't say like, oh man, well, let's redo the whole blessing thing. He can't redo it. It's like, well, it is what it is now. And this is regular in the Old Testament. Like they'll just make a vow and you'll be like, oh, but you didn't mean that. He's like, yeah, I didn't mean that. Oh, well, it is what it is now. You know, the Old and New Testament give us this, and there's a lot of name changing around this. So you see like Jacob wrestles with God prevails and now he's Israel, right? Or Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and now he's Paul. You see these name changes. These are identity markers, moments. You used to be Cephas, now you're Peter, okay? And what's happening is there's this mediated blessing of identity through the father and it's always the heavenly father through these earthly fathers or it's the heavenly father through his son, Jesus Christ or through covenant. And the, the big idea is the reason you and I need fathers is because we need to be reminded of who we are and that's, that only happens not on the basis of us going out and exploring. Remember Moses when he went out and explored in the wilderness for 40 years? The only way he found identity is that he met up with the bush that was on fire but not consumed. And what did he learn? He said, what's your name? I am who I am, Moses. Moses knew who he was only in relation to the I am. There's a foundation, the father, and everything grows out of that. Who God is, is the foundation of all soil of life. And so that's why blessing is mediated through the father to the sons and the daughters on who you are. Your origin is where? In the father. And if you know him, then you know yourself. And that's essential, but it's only in relation. If you do not know yourself in relation to God, the answer is devolving. It's like going out into the void. You, you unravel as a person. This is why the book of Revelation has be the beast. You become less and less human, less and less an image bearer, more and more beast-like, the further away you get from the identity that you have in the Father, okay? Okay, that was more than I gave the nine, but let's keep going. So what does Paul say about their identity? Now, this is key to Corinth, but it's also key to us. The first thing he says is you are sanctified saints. I wish I had a lot of time to talk about this, but very simply put, we know that there is justification before God and sanctification before God. And we usually, as Christians, use sanctification to describe a progressive um, path that you and I are all on, that God is sanctifying us progressively to be more like Jesus, okay? And that is many times how the New Testament speaks of it, but not always. This verse 
is talking about something that has happened to Corinth. They have been sanctified. They are sanctified, not on the basis of anything they're going to do later. They're already sanctified. That's what this Greek word means. They are saints right now. So what does this mean? They are set apart. They are holy. And why would that be essential for Corinth? Because they live in the midst of a very decadent, immoral, grotesque culture. And God tells them, you already are sanctified. You already are set apart right now as my people. Then he tells them they're together. They're unified with their brothers and sisters. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that the very next thing we're going to address next week is divisions within the church. And what does Paul tell them? You are unified. You are together. And you're not just together with each other in the church. You're together with every single Christian that calls upon the name of the Lord in all the nations. Not on the basis of ethnicity or class, but on the basis of Christ who has made you one. And then lastly, he reminds them, this is an identity that's been bestowed upon you by God. Because how are all these things true? Because you're in Christ Jesus. Noah was safe. Why? Because he was in the ark. Paul tells us, you are all these things because you're in Christ Jesus. These have been given to you as a gift. Paul is playing the role of Old Testament father. And he's telling, just like young Jacob heard the blessing from his father. But what he really needed was his heavenly father when he wrestled him by the river. Paul's playing the role of Old Testament father by laying his hands on a Corinthian church that is dirty, that has done dirty things. We're going to get into it. And he's saying, you are clean. Why? Because of what Christ has done. This is a blessing from a father to a people that don't deserve that blessing, but that's the essence of the gospel. It is the foundation for the entirety of this letter. If you don't understand this portion, all of 1 Corinthians is going to seem like a to-do list. The foundation for this letter is what is already true of you and I because of Jesus. And it's from that that we're called to a different life. Okay, last point is verses four through nine. What does Paul then do? He he does the best dad move ever. He shows gratitude to teach gratitude. Dads, this is something to think about. If you want grateful children, how should you do it? Model gratitude to them. Show thankfulness to God and others right in front of them. Show thankfulness to God for them. Show thankfulness to God for things that you see in them, even if you only see 1%, and it should be 100%. Paul's going to thank God for things in the Corinthian church that really, some of it's they're doing really well at, and some of it, you know, if you're grading on a curve, they're still barely passing. But he shows how to be a good father or spiritual father by thanking God for the good that he sees. And he shows, he, he thanks God for three things. First is, he thanks God for his grace amongst the Corinthians, He thanks God for the gift amongst the Corinthians and for the guarantees that God has given. Let's go through those. Verse four, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. This is key because Paul is giving the Corinthian church on the front end what they're going to need as they listen to a pretty tough, stern letter from dad. If you've ever had to sit down with your dad and you know you've been doing things wrong, it's kind of already on the, on the front end, you know, this is going to be a stern conversation. Paul's telling them that, hey, there's plenty of grace, a treasure trove of grace stored up for you. So don't come on the front end of this. When I start talking to you about things that need to change and that you need to repent of, he's telling them, I'm thankful that God has all the grace necessary to receive you in, to bring you in. It's essential for us that as we approach this letter, if we cover areas in the next year that are convicting to us, as I'm sure we will, We must be reminded that God's grace is extended for us and heaped up in keeping for us in our times of need, which we will have. We ought not run away from him, but to him 
Because just as Paul's seeking to be a good spiritual father on earth, we have a heavenly father who loves us, who calls us to himself. He then goes on to verse five, and he gives thanks to God for their giftedness. Verse five, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. God has given the Corinthian church gifts, okay? And I want you to know that Paul's gonna have a conversation about gifts and much like maybe has happened with you and your own kids, you give your kids gifts at Christmas and like by New Year's, you know, your son's hitting your, his sister over the head with the gifts you bought him, you know? You guys know what I'm talking about? That, that happens in our household. You get your kid a gift and it's like supposed to be really enjoyable, but it really turns into a fight. It's like you got that gaming system or whatever and pretty quickly controllers are being thrown and you thought it was gonna be your kids, but it's you. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but maybe. And that's happening in Corinth. God's, God's given all these gifts and they're fighting over, you know, they got so-and-so's breaking out in tongues in the middle of service. So-and-so's always got a word of prophecy for somebody. You know, all these things are, it's just a crazy situation. So-and-so's got a little tipsy on the communion wine and somebody else has got a word for them from the Lord. One person says that God's gonna judge you for this. The other one says, I got a word that says God is totally okay with it because of his grace and how lavish it is. And Paul starts his letter, not by addressing all that, although he will, he starts by saying, I'm really glad God's given you guys gifts. It's not even facetious. What a great thing to say. Paul recognizes the problem's not the gifts, okay? We should be grateful that God gives gifts. The problem is how we can twist them. So he says, I'm grateful that you're gifted, but I want to point out something, and we don't have enough time to get into it, but in the Bible, what you'll find is three categories of gifts. It doesn't matter if you read Romans or 1 Corinthians or Ephesians or 1 Peter. There's three categories of gifts. There's gifts of uh, speech, gifts of knowledge, or gifts of service. And what does Paul say? You guys, I'm so glad you're gifted in speech and in knowledge. <laughs> he doesn't say anything else. Now, this is a very slight thing, that, but, but if you understand where he's headed in 1 Corinthians, it makes a ton of sense. He's commending them for a lot of their activity and their growth in two out of the three categories of gifts, but he's completely leaving off one that he's not going to cross that bridge just yet with them, but he is laying down a little bit of crumbs for them. So I'll just say this, and maybe it's something for you to consider, but there is a danger of being theologically and rhetorically strong while being weak and illiterate in love and service to others. Paul's alluding to it here. But he's doing it in such a fatherly way. He's not saying that being theologically and rhetorically strong is bad. He thanks God for it. He's saying that when it is to the exclusion of loving service to God and others, there's trouble. So some of the dysfunction we're going to see in Corinth is that issue. And he's alluding to it here. Okay, he then moves on to one final derivative that God has sanctified his people through guarantees. We know them as promises. What are those guarantees? Well, let's, let's walk through them. Verse six, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you until the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few things, very simply. God confirms to them the testimony of Christ among them. Many of us have been through these moments where maybe there's such a recurring pattern of sin in our lives that we question our own faith, our own eternal security, whether or not we're legit or whether we're phony. And Paul here, as a good spiritual father would, brings to them a confirmation of their faith. He brings to them the truth that they can be sure that they're in Christ. 
And on what basis? Well, he's going to tell us it's on the basis of who Christ is, not themselves. Then he moves on and says that they can be sure that Christ is going to return from them, that, that there might be some people in Corinth that are really tired of living in a world that really is fighting against them all the time. That, that you know, living in a culture that basically is entirely antithetical to the way you're trying to live and you start to get weary and, and Paul tells them, Christ is going to return and he will be revealed for you. He's going to return for you. Now there might be some in Corinth and we know that they're most assuredly were that might have heard the return of Christ not as something to be pleasant but something as potentially to be dangerous for them if Christ is going to return and I truly am uh, in sin what will that mean for me and Paul as a good spiritual father tells them I'm sure that you will be held guiltless on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ that's what he tells I'm sure that you're going to stand before Jesus and you won't be held as a guilty man but as a guiltless man or woman The thrust of this greeting, this first nine verses, is simple. Paul turns the eyes of Corinth to God. He tells them, gifts have a giver. Grace has a dispenser. Security has a protector. And we have all of those in Christ Jesus. And as he reminds the Corinthians of these things, he teaches them a fatherly lesson about gratitude. He shows them how to be grateful to be grateful by being grateful. And he says, I thank God for all of these things, even the ones that are messed up, twisted, a little bit perverted. I'll tell you, if you're a father or mother in there, this was convicting to me, how do we create homes of gratitude? It's not that we wait for perfection in order to thank God in front of our children for things, but we thank God for all of the evidence of grace that we see. And if we were to look around, we would see much of it. Even in the most dysfunctional of homes, we could say, thank God for so much. And Paul shows us how to do that here. In the midst of a dysfunctional church that's really decadent and prideful and thinks they know everything, Paul shows a lot of humility here and does a great job. Finally, he does something wise and wonderful that is a little bit hidden, but not really. As he turns the Corinthian head to what has been done for them, we must be reminded that the rest of the book is what he's proceeding to call them to. Paul shows us a pattern here that before we call one another or our children or others to obedience in Christ, we first must tell them what's been done for them and what's true for them in Christ already. That is, that is completely removed from anything that they could ever do to earn it. The message of the gospel is a message of it's not merit, unmerited favor, unmerited grace. Grace itself has no meaning if merit is involved Paul says these things, you have been sanctified. He says, you have been unified together with the saints. You have been enriched in grace. You have been gifted beyond imagination. You have been confirmed in Christ. You have been promised security and sustaining grace. You will stand guiltless on the last day. And this is important because, of course, these things are true for us in Christ. Now, if you're like the Corinthian church, you may be saying, how can I be so sure? Because there's lots of evidence on the ground that I should be considered not those things. Well, there was division and strife in Corinth. There was sexual immorality. There was drunken communion. There was feasting with idols. There was selfish, unloving behavior and gatherings and on and on I could go. On what basis can the Corinthians be confident that they're sanctified, blessed by God, enriched by grace, all of these different things? Well, Paul ends this, this first greeting here in verse 9 by telling us why he is so confident to say these things. And it's very simple. Verse 9, God is faithful. That's why. If you've ever wondered, like, 
how can I say these things over my kids if you know they don't really show those? You're not, they're not really exhibiting these qualities. This is the pattern of our Father that speaks these blessings over us all the time. When we He spoke life over dead bones, <laughs> and you and I came alive. So the reason we could be so confident to follow His lead here is because this is who God is. He blesses us with the truth about the gospel, even though when it's untrue with us. Paul said it like this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You and I were not meriting that death or meriting that sacrifice. It's not like a brother in war, in combat, that sacrifices himself for his fellow brother because they've, you know, have each other's backs for so long. We didn't have Jesus's back. It's not like we were useful to him. We were none of those things. He loved us, that's why. And he did this for us. And therefore, if he did not save us on the basis of our works, we can be sure that he's not gonna retract these blessings on the basis of those works, but he's bestowed them because of who he is. Paul says, it's about God's character that I say these things. It's about who your dad is, in other words. And you and I, if you're, you're here this morning, you might say, I, have, I don't have a great earthly father. I have news for you. You have a great heavenly father. Your heritage is beautiful. It's glorious. There's nothing like it. In all the earth, you could never imagine having a father that's bestowed upon you this. And every day that goes by, you find out there's new bank accounts in different places spiritually, that he's laid aside things for you. He's laid aside treasures for you that you could never imagine. And every day, listen to me, as you try to figure out how that you might know him more and you know more about him, you realize there's more laid up for you than you could have ever imagined. It's not like you get to the beginning of the gospel and that's all that there is. Paul shows us there is an immeasurable rich, richness in God's grace and you keep finding more. The last thing Paul says is he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. So essential, before you were ever called to serve in the children's ministry, before you were ever called to be a front door greeter, before you were called to be a home group leader or lead a Bible study or be on the worship team, before you were ever called to obedience of repenting of specific sin, the first calling, the essential calling, is that you're called into the fellowship of the Son. You're called into fellowship with the Son of God. I want you to think of the prodigal son story here this is the doorway into 1 Corinthians. If you don't get this, you don't get any of it. It's an invitation as the prodigal son comes home. What does the father do? He runs, he doesn't wait, and chastise the son. The conversation, my guess, this is conjecture, the conversation's always gonna happen between the father and the son. And the reason I know this is because I'm a dad. <laughs> if you're a dad, then you probably know this too. Of course, there's gonna be a conversation about the wasting the money with women of the night. When does it happen? First thing that happens is the father runs, grabs his son, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, puts a robe on his back. He reestablishes who you are is not eating with the pigs, but my son. And Paul's doing something here where he tells us, because God's faithful, Corinth, I know I got a report from Chloe, and Chloe's kind of a tattletale, but she's a good girl too, you know? Um, and I know the report's bad. The report card on Corinth has not been good. But what does he say? These are all the things that are true for you. Come on in and let's have dinner together. We can talk about all these things. That's the context for this letter. And this is how the father disciplines. Of course, we don't like the conversation. It's weird to talk about those things, isn't it? It's awful to talk. It's difficult to re relive some things. But you're talking about these things in the context of a home 
of which you are a member with a father who loves you and brothers and sisters who are, who are taking part with you. That's the context for 1 Corinthians. And truly, it's the context through which we should see discipline from the Father generally. Let me pray for us, and then we'll worship and, and eat at the Lord's table together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for not just this letter to the Corinthian church, but for your word at large, that you give us an invitation every single day to new mercies. And every single Lord's Day, we come and we're invited to your table again. And so as we come to your table, would you remind us of exactly who we are, what you've spoken over us and the blessings of a father. And Lord, I do pray that you would make spiritual fathers and mothers of us, that we might do the exact same things that Paul does here with Corinth to our own children, that we might follow his lead and do it with other spiritual children, that we would speak life over death, that we would speak truth over lies, that we would speak encouragement and hope in the face of any despair. As we take of your supper now, we ask that we would reflect deeply. And for any who might not know you this morning, my God, I pray that that invitation would go out into the fellowship of the Son and that they might walk through that door by faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. If you would like to know more information about who we are and how you can partner with us to make the gospel unignorable in our city, please visit us at www.providencetx.org.